GU Connect is an initiative of Core2Ed. This podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from ASI Europe Limited. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution or the rest of the GU Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core2Ed website. So, hello and welcome to this podcast on clinical implementation of targeted and immunotherapies for advanced renal cell carcinoma. I am Dr. Frederike Schlömer, a GU medical oncologist from the University Hospital of Brest and Quimper in France and a member of GU Connect. And I'm so delighted to be joined today by Professor Thomas Powell, junior urinary medical oncologist at Boston Cancer Center Institute UK. So, Thomas, we've seen the treatment landscape for metastatic RCC is changing a lot over the past decade. So current guidelines are recommend for first-line advanced RCC include various combinations of targeted and immunotherapies based on the data from a number of key trials. Maybe we could start off by discussing a little bit what these trials showed us. Okay, I mean, that's a good place to start. So I think it's fair to say that in chronological order, and the reason it's relevant is this trial has got the longest follow-up. The ipilimumab and nivolumab study, Checkmate 214, was compared to sunitinib. And this trial was positive for overall survival, which was one of the three primary endpoints. It was also turned out in the end to be positive for aggression-free survival and response as well. But the reality is it's the overall survival data that's really impressive. And that's largely limited to the intermediate and poorest population. So ipinevo, you know, something like a 30% reduction in the risk of death compared to sunitinib with five-year follow-up with 50% of patients getting to about five years. There's a tail on the progression-free curve, so patients go into durable remission. And, you know, particularly after the ipinevo phase, the sort of maintenance and volumab phase, the ongoing quality of life is really good. So that set a standard. And then there were a series of VEGF-TKI PD-1 trials, Keynote 426, that is the AXI-PEMBRO trial, 9ER, that looked at CABO-NEVO. And then the final trial is the CLEAR trial, Levatinib and Pembrolizumab, all of which were also positive for OS. And in fact, the OS hazard ratios are very similar across these different trials. And indeed, they're very similar to the IPI-NEVO trial. And you've got Levatinib and Pembrolizumab, Axitinib and pembrolizumab, and cabazatinib and nivolumab. These VEGF-TKI IO trials, they've got higher response rates. So their response rates tends to be between 60 and 70%, whereas ipinevo more like sort of 45%, so higher response rate. And these VEGF-TKI IO combinations have longer PFS, and indeed they seem to work, particularly in the initial cuts, well in good intermediate and porous disease, rather than just intermediate and porous disease. Mm. From a tolerability perspective, I think they're a bit easier to give at the start. You know, I think Epinevo's got some challenges with the immune combinations, but they're more challenging because you have to give chronic VEGF-TKI therapy. Mm. So I think it's fair to say that it swings and roundabouts from a toxicity perspective. And because the follow-up isn't quite as long, it's also fair to say we haven't got as many durable remissions in mm. these trials that we have in the IPNEVO trial, which is also a fair point. Mm. So I think in summary, IPNEVO in intermediate and porous disease, and then VEGF-TKI PD-1 therapy in good intermediate and poor, 
the three combinations we use, more similarities than differences from a VEGFTKI IO perspective. Mm. And then two okay. quick caveats at the end, if I may. Number one is the most recent data for VEGFTKI PD-1 in the good risk population hasn't yet shown that survival advantage. And I don't think it will in the future. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know. But there's a debate about the good risk patients, which I think is an mm. interesting one. Right. Um, and, and then mm. the last point is the PDL1 combinations have not been successful. So Valimab and Atezolizumab mm. have not been as successful. Mm. So you like talked about a lot of data that we have today, and I think it's it's pretty difficult for physicians today to choose between those combinations. So how do you choose? What is the basis for you to, to maybe prefer a treatment to another? How do you choose? I think this is genuinely difficult. The first question is, do you want to use Ipinevo? Let's talk about the intermediate and poor risk. You've got mm -hmm. four regimes to use. Are you going to use Ipinevo or are you going to use VEGF-PD-1? I think because the response rate for VEGF-PD-1 is higher and the primary progression rate is lower, for those patients where you really feel you need to get control of disease, you know, mm -hmm. bone metastasis, aggressive liver metastasis, if you're, if you're really worried, you probably are better off with VEGF-TKI-IO combinations. Yeah, right. I agree. Um, and I think that's a fair thing to say. Um, mm -hmm. And I think most people agree with that. There is mm -hmm. some recent data from the Cosmic 313 study, which if you you know, are beginning to question the VEGF-TKI in the poorest population. But I, I think most people agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, I think you can't go far wrong by giving VEGF-TKI-IO to everyone, in my opinion. Although there are people, Dave McDermott, Hans Hammers, other people who would say they want to give Ipinevo to everyone. So that doesn't mean I'm right about this. So there's genuine choice. There are some intermediate risk patients who, you know, maybe don't look like they've got rapidly progressive disease, who you can get away with giving Ipinevo without that risk of primary progression and things. So you know, there may be subsets of patients, but it's probably easier to pick one regime or the other. Mm. I think it's still a really difficult decision. And it's uh, for me, it's almost impossible to do that without seeing the patient. And without discussing with the patient the different options that we have. And I can imagine for physicians that are listening to us today, it's kind of difficult too, because I think there are a lot of physicians are afraid of the toxicity that comes with those doublets. So what could a physician expect as a toxicity from those doublets, IO and IOTKI? What, what do you see the most frequently with those doublets? So, Frederick, what I'm kind of saying at the moment, I'm saying pick one and use it well. And that's a use, mm. that's a phrase that I'm using quite a lot. I was involved in the prosopinib sunitinib debate back in the day, and I probably got too involved in that. And actually, those drugs have more similarities and differences. And actually, what it turned out was that many people were stopping the drugs early. And so actually, education and training around how to give the drugs is much more important. And that includes patient training, obviously. This is much more important than the which regime you pick, in my opinion. I think that the toxicity that you really do need to watch out for is particularly during the first 12 weeks for Ipinevo, and that has to be immune-related toxicity. And almost anything can happen. And so if a patient's coming in with a problem, you need to be on top of that and introducing steroids quickly. Um, if in doubt, it's probably immune-related toxicity and give steroids under mm -hmm. those circumstances. Wait at least a, two weeks until things have settled down after the steroids before reintroducing, otherwise the problem's likely to recur. Make sure the patients are aware of the problems that may occur and also make sure that the nursing team 
uh, and you have 24 hour support because the patient shouldn't be sitting at home for days mm. with grade three colitis because they've got a hospital appointment in a few days time. Mm. So that's what I'm right. saying for VEGF TKI. Of course, the same rules apply for for PD-1 um, VEGF targeted therapy because you can get, you know, grade three, grade four, dare I say it, grade five immune related toxicity with a PD-1 um, VEGF TKI combinations as well. What I have noticed with the exception perhaps of the LEM-PEN combination is we're seeing quite a lot of transaminitis with mm-hmm. the VEGF TKI PD-1 combinations, and, and that requires attention. It's possible, do you think it's VEGF TKI related? It's possible actually, particularly with Axi Pembro, you know, grade two diarrhea, mm. not really sure. Right. Stop the Axi for a couple of days and see how you go. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't do that for, you know, if you've got diarrhea that's progressing over day three, I would then say, right, we need steroids. But it's okay with the Axi particularly because Axi has a short half-life. It's okay to stop mm-hmm. that and just see how you get on. Now, not in grade three toxicity, but in grade one and grade two toxicity, because getting the dose right, the VEGF TKI is really important. My opinion of lenvatinib at 20 milligrams is quite high. And most patients in the study, about 75% had the dose reduced. But then lenvatinib does have the highest response rate. Axitinib mm-hmm. is probably the easiest drug to give. You know, it's the shortest mm-hmm. half-life. You can almost dose escalate and you can reduce. Um, and of course, it's worthwhile mentioning the cabazatinib started at 40 milligrams, not the standard 60 milligrams, and still got great results. Uh, and the quality of life data for the, the Cabo Nevo trial, um, experts mm. like David Seller tell me is the best quality of life data of those. So I think each of those three regimes, I've come up with a reason why you might want to give it. Um, mm-hmm. And again, you, you know, I guess you need to pick as a clinician one of those and go with it. I don't know how, how you do it in your center. I'm pretty blessed that in my center, we have a lot of resources to manage those patients. We are specialized pharmacists to see my patients, to see if there's no interaction between the drugs that they already have. And we have a lot of nurses who can call the patient. We have applications. We're really lucky. We can do a lot to be there for a patient with all the staff that we have. I don't know. I would be um, interested to know how do you do it in your center in the UK? Do you have all those people around you to help you to guide the patient, like nurses and pharmacists, things like that? Don't give up your job job and come to the UK anytime soon. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that's the first thing you There's a lot yeah. of reasons not to do that, um, but, mm. but it sounds to me like, uh, like you're really well resourced. You know, yeah. I think actually we're quite well resourced in our centre. I'm, I'm joking aside. Okay. We've got some terrific CN, um, um, specialist nurses. Uh, we mm. don't have pharmacists in clinic, um, okay. I, but I think we should. Uh, yes. Other teams in our hospital do. Uh, we're quite well resourced. We've got quite a big trial team. So we've got quite a lot of doctors and clinical fellows and a lot of our patients mm. on trials and they have clinical trials practitioners who they can phone as well. So, you know, We'd like each patient to have one or two telephone numbers. We'd like a big multidisciplinary team to be seeing the patients and being involved in their care. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's really important. You know, I also think we've got to a position now where the emergency departments are, are no longer thinking immune therapies, chemotherapy. You know, we mm-hmm. were about a time about four or five years ago where you pitched up on pembrolizumab or nivolumab or tesalizumab and you got IV antibiotics if you weren't feeling well and diarrhea. I think we've moved away from that now, which is great. So there's some primary care education, which is super important. Exactly. Patient education is important too. 
Yeah, I think it's it's a big challenge to teach all the staff of a hospital for those kind of drugs. And it's a big challenge to teach your patients. And that, that's really a big part of it. For me, it's like one of the biggest because it's the patient who is going to alert somebody, the patient who's going to come into the emergency room and the one who can give the information of what treatment he's on. That's really important. But I think we're, we're lucky, you're lucky and I'm lucky that we have all of this. So I always try to think about what we could do to help practitioners who don't have all those resources to still be able to give the doublet therapy, which is now for me the standard uh, for intermediate and high-risk patients. So I don't know if you have any idea, but I think it's really difficult to help those practitioners because they don't have as much time and as much staff to, to still be able to prescribe a doublet therapy and do this in a secure way. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's difficult as well. I mean, what I'd say to my patients, particularly during the first four to six weeks of therapy, when there's an oral targeted therapy, not for the Epinevi regime, but I say, listen, the first four or six weeks is a bit of an experiment. And, mm. you know, you won't be taking the tablet every day. <laughs> That's funny because I say the same thing to my patients. It's, I always say it's going to be like, like a little bit rocky and rough two months roundabout. And after that, normally it should be easier. It's probably the case that if you're not seeing large numbers of patients, it's probably a bit easier to give VEGF, TKI, IO, and IOIO combinations. But I think from a patient's perspective, it's nice to be on single agent nivolumab after 16 weeks. I think that's really appealing. So it is swings and roundabouts. We need to be very careful about that issue. I think that if you're going to give Ipinevo, you need to be working in a somewhere which, which is comfortable with that immune combination. It's obviously given a lot in melanoma. I don't think it's given that much outside of renal and melanoma. You know, I think there were some studies where it's, which were positive, of course, but I think chemotherapy plus immune therapy in lung cancer is a standard. It's not a standard in bladder cancer. I don't think it's a standard in the GI cancers, although I think Dervatremi just got a license somewhere. As a rule, if you're not treating large numbers of patients and your hospital's not giving a lot of immune combination therapy, PD-1IO might be an easier thing to reach for. But I I also feel that, and I know many colleagues of mine will say, there is a really important role to play with immune combination therapy, but you don't have to give it in kidney cancer right now. So I probably would say you might be better off. And I think clinicians who are happy giving VEGF-TKI therapy may find it easier to switch from VEGF-TKI to VEGF-TKI-IO than Ipinevo. That doesn't mean that's the thing I think you have to do, I'm just saying in practical terms, if you're seeing one or two patients a year and your site's not set up to give epinevo, that might be an easier approach. Yeah, you're so right. I think one of the, the most important things about all of that is that you have a learning curve and we we are all able as an oncologist to, to learn and to get used to those drugs. It just takes some time. And maybe you should not be afraid of asking help from other colleagues who do it a little bit more often. And, and try to get used to those drugs and not to to not prescribe them because we still have patients and I still see patients sometimes who are on monotherapy, which is kind of sad for the patient because I think they should get a doublet. But I think we it's manageable, like you said, but you have to maybe stick with one combination and just do it good and well and know what you're doing. I think that's, that's the right thing to, to do and to say. So um, thank you so much for that discussion. So... Could you just like summarize maybe all of that, what we said today about like first line treatment of renal cell cancer and maybe just like a quick word on what you think is going to happen maybe in the next 
months and years, uh, how all of this is going to develop? What do you think about all of that? Well, I'm very happy to have a quick stab at that. And then perhaps I'd be really interested to hear what, what, what you think as well. I think in summary, I think what you said is correct, is that the PD-1 combinations have superseded single agent VEGF-TKI therapy, particularly for intermediate and porous mm. disease. And I think that there are four options, ipilimumab and ivolumab, ipilimab, of course, and then three VEGF-TKI PD-1 combinations. The first was actipembro, the second cabonevo, and the third lenvacanib and pembrolizumab. I can make an argument for giving all four, and I'm currently saying pick one and use it well. I think we've discussed how important it is to have allied healthcare professionals involved in the management and how important it is the patients are well informed to maximize efficacy and minimize toxicity. I think in terms of looking to the future, we've had the recent Cosmic 313 data. I think we're going to need to see an overall survival signal before triplet therapy changes practice. That's the first thing I'd like to talk about. The second thing is we've also seen some phase two Belzutifan data, but mm. we really need to see some phase three data mm. on mm. the standard of care. I think the future of that drug is in combinations. And then the last thing I think I'd like to say is we haven't seen enough of the biomarker data in advanced disease yet. And I'd like to see um, some attempt to select patients, particularly for that question around immune immune versus immune VEGF therapies. And, mm. uh, and, and that's going to be really important. We haven't done as well as I'd like in biomarkers in mm. kidney cancer. And we should, I think, have done a bit better. We didn't do great biomarkers with sunitinib and prosopinib. And at the mm. moment, we're not doing great biomarker work yet, although there is some really nice exploratory data, particularly actually with the PDL one inhibitors. There was a Nature Medicine publication and a Nature publication for a tezolizumab and for a, a valumab, which are PDL one inhibitors. Yeah. So let's have a look and see some more PD one data for the future. What are your thoughts? What do you think is going to happen next? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm so. Is it so true what you said? I think right now the challenge for me and for most of the physicians is really to get the doublet into clinical practice everywhere, so that we don't lose our patients like with a monotherapy. This is kind of a thing still today if you look at the data. And for me, the, the biggest question will be then what we do after that. And you talked about the Belzuti fan. So we're really waiting for those trials with that drug that it seems to be amazing. And it, it could be for us really a solution after the doublet therapy, because this is for me right now, the biggest problem. What, what do we do after the doublet therapy? So I'm eagerly waiting for those phase three trials to to help us to to know what to do after the double therapy. I think that's really the biggest question for me right now. I think that sounds pretty sensible to me. So thank you again. That was really nice talking to you, having this overview about RCC. And uh, thank you to our listeners. And we hope you to have uh, found the discussion useful, that you like to listen to us today, and maybe we'll see each other again another time. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you very much. This GU Connect podcast was brought to you by CourtoEd Independent Medical Education. For more information, please visit courtoed.com and select Oncology.